Hello and welcome to Bread and Thread, a podcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz. And I'm Hazel. We are two friends who studied archaeology together and love making things and history and the history of making things. And we normally like to start by talking about what we are currently making. So what are you up to? Oh, I'm so happy. Why for? I finished the Knives Out jumper. Oh, amazing. Just in time to go and see my grandparents so I could show it off to my grandma. Amazing. Was it admired? Oh, it was. Yes. I I saw your last picture of that with the all of the cables and oof. so many cables. <laughs> it it came to a kilo of yarn. Oh my gosh. For a Nick size jumper. <laughs> that is going to be cozy AF. Yeah, they said it's kind of like wearing a weighted blanket. <laughs> Sounds quite nice. And I also finished the snail rug. <gasps> okay, I'm looking at a picture of the snail rug right now, and it is glorious. Oh my it's gosh. Effervescent. It is effervescent. You better put this on the Twitter because the people need to see this. I will put it on the Twitter. <laughs> it's amazing. I love it. <laughs> it looks really like it looks like the kind of rug that you can properly wiggle your toes into as well. Oh yeah, punch needle rugs are deep. Mm, but I deep also kind snail. of don't want to use it as a rug because what if it gets dirty? Because <laughs> I worked so hard on it for so long. Oh, oh man, yeah, I know that feel with the handmade things. I might but... just put it next to the bed as like a nice feeling when I wake up. <laughs> yeah. If it's not woolen, you could wash it easily, though. Or you should be able to. I think I should be able to hand wash it. Yeah. Like hand carpet shampoo it or something. Mm. But hopefully, you don't need to worry about that for a while. So what have you been up to? Um, Not a lot, because I have had flu for the past two weeks. <laughs> yeah, it hasn't been a fun time. <laughs> um, It's... The obligatory is not COVID. I did a PCR test. I was just really unlucky and caught the flu on Christmas. <laughs> but fortunately, I got over the worst of it just before Christmas. Um, but yeah, I had basically no energy to do anything fun. I was going to make um, St. Lucia buns. They're like little saffron Scandinavian Christmas buns. Um, but... Um, I did not do that because I couldn't do anything except stay in bed and be grumpy. Um, <laughs> but I will do a local larder on them probably next time. Um, yeah, and then uh, so so yeah, there was there was stuff I was going to do, but I didn't really do any of it. I'm afraid. <laughs> but. Um, I'm you still. Like, you sound so apologetic. Like, don't don't feel bad that you felt bad. <laughs> um, I you know I just feel like I should contribute something to this podcast. You're contributing <laughs> a whole episode right now. I am, I am, but I I don't know. I feel thank me for it because it's pretty grim. Um, but it deserves to be known. So, um. This episode, we're going to talk about um, what is commonly known as the Irish potato famine. 
So we did touch on this in our previous episode about the potato. Um, but we thought this event in history deserves kind of its own episode because there is a lot at play here. Um, and it is, well, it's almost, it's almost not that potato related. Um, because like, while it is a potato famine, it's like a lot of, most of what I'm going to talk about is going to be sort of political and social. So, um, yeah, it's a whole, it's a whole episode kind of thing. And I've got to warn you, this isn't going to be a very lighthearted episode. Um, it, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty sad and anger inducing. So, um, yeah, there's not going to be a lot of jokes and, <laughs> and wisecracks in this one. Um, but there are some more positive things that, that, um that do come out of it as well like i'll be talking a bit about um the international aid that you know came from some quite interesting places and um and you know some some more uh sort of lighter things um and also i want to say that this is a very complex um, subject as well. And this is not going to be like a compre comprehensive history. Like there are lots of people who have written lots of books and stuff on this. And like, there's a lot of information out there. This isn't going to be like, this is everything that happened in the history of the Great Famine. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna go through sort of a a short history of it, um, and but it's mainly gonna be sort of looking into the social aspects because again, I mean, we are a domestic history podcast. It's gonna be sort of more of a series of impressions, I guess. Yeah, I mean, we we don't do you know the entire history of X. Yeah, I mean that's the whole thing. Like we're we're not, you know, picking up. We're not coming out with that much new information. It's more our vibe is like a couple of decently informed nerds discussing stuff, right? Yeah. <laughs> so that's the tagline. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'll I'll take that. That is that label is good enough for me. Um. So yeah. Um this episode I'm going to be talking about what is commonly known outside of Ireland as the Irish potato famine um, but uh, is described also as the Great Famine or in Irish and Gorta more the Great Hunger um, so that like there's various ways of describing it but um, so what happened was uh there's there's a bit of controversy about the word famine as well um because there was 
it start it did start off with the failure of the potato crop um but it turned into a seven year famine um mainly because of what can be termed at best gross mismanagement and at worst sort of deliberate malice on the part of the British government. So um, that's another reason there's sort of various ways of of describing or sort of titling it. Yeah, um, I, mean, I mean, there is there is the argument to be made that most famines are in some way manufactured either through incompetence or malice. Like the big mm. ones in history, it's generally one or the other. It's not yeah. the crops not, not growing, at least in yeah. history. Um, no, I've absolutely heard that too, and and also the argument that, um, like, in in many places where there is a famine, it may be genuinely difficult to distribute food aid because of a war or you know things like that. Um, whereas in this case, that wasn't happening, so there's not really an excuse. Um, so yeah, it is. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not defending anyone. Oh, no, no, I'm not. No, that that was sort of an add-on. <laughs> um, but yeah, so like your comparison to to modern famines made me think of that because it is still one of the worst famines in history. Um, you know, even compared to to things that have happened since. Um. And there are many reasons for this. So as we touched on in the potato episode, um, in 1845, the potato crop failed across Europe. And can you remind me what, like, what it was that the potato blight was called and why it's not a fungus? Uh, an oomycyte. That's the one! Sorry, um, that's, that's a good little word. So the potato crop failed, um, actually across Europe to varying degrees. Um, but when it hit Ireland, there are various reasons that it created this, this massive, um, gap in the food supply. Um, one of them is that potato the potato was a massive part of the irish food supply um and another one was that it was basically one variety of potato so that meant that they they all got the blight um but there were also other more political reasons as well. So Ireland had been under occupation by Great Britain um, pretty much for several centuries at this point. Um, and one of the reasons that the land system in Ireland was was distributed in the way it was was because of this group of laws called the Penal Laws which were imposed by the British government. And these were a series of laws that restricted um, 
Catholics um, as to what they could do, what what land they could own, um, which had had been very restrictive since the 17th century, um, when there had been a rebellion which was pretty brutally crushed by Oliver Cromwell, um, who who did some pretty horrible things in Ireland. Um, I go as far as to say atrocities. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and and so then these penal laws were brought in, and they restricted how how Catholics would be part of public life. They weren't allowed to vote or to hold certain positions. Um, they weren't allowed to own property above a certain like lease of number of years. Uh, not allowed to own a horse above the value of five pounds. Um, I didn't know about the horse one. Yeah, apparently it was to uh, prevent like the Catholic majority from having horses that could be used for military purposes. No, like um, I, I see, I see where they were coming from, but also that's wild. It's a very specific restriction, yeah. <laughs> um, and also, if you did own property. Um, you weren't allowed to pass it on intact to your eldest child. You had to distribute it equally between the children. So that basically meant that over the generations, um, Catholic landowners would become less and less powerful. But it also meant that the plots of land would become smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, And so people were trying to get more out of the plot of land by growing the most efficient crop, which was the potato. Um, and also um, the the system of like land owning. So a lot of the a lot of the absentee landlords, so those that lived in England or elsewhere but owned the land in Ireland but would basically just never be there, um, who may have received land um also a lot of the rent money which was kind of being funneled back to england because a lot of the landowners would be english landlords who were termed absentee landlords who would be living in england or elsewhere but owning the land in ireland which they basically never saw um would be employing middlemen to like administrate the the tenants and they would impose quite high rents and then people would like sublet and stuff so the the whole land system um meant that there were a lot of these tiny tiny farms um and so when the potato blight hit ireland it hit really hard because people like it was the the kind of staple food mm-hmm. um and often it was like people were really relying on it um because they were trying to get the most out of their their small area of farmland um and the kind of traditional um irish life was structured around like the commu- the the village community and so that was one of the reasons um that the failure of the potato crop hit really hard um initially um the british government actually did did do something about it what i know i know um robert peel who was the prime minister at the time um 
famous for other things such as like forming the British police force mm-hmm. um so he actually did kind of recognize that it was going to be a problem um when the potato blight reached Ireland it was reported in the newspapers and mm, it was kind of a mixed reaction like some people were really worried some people thought that it wasn't going to be that bad um and Robert Peel actually sent a commission of scientific investigators to go to Ireland and um, kind of review the situation and see how bad it was going to be. And they um, came back saying this is basically really bad news um, and you're going to have a terrible situation on your hands in if, if things continue this way. Um, and Unfortunately, um, he was still, he was a Tory prime minister, so his party were very much not in favour of him, like, spending money on doing anything to avert this this kind of brewing catastrophe. Not that the Whig government was any better, as we will see later, um, but... He ended up having to kind of covertly do this scheme where he brought in maize and and tried to distri- distribute that, like not really for people to eat, but more so that it would bring down inflation of food prices that was happening because of this huge gap in the market left by the potato. Um, but it was like a really convoluted system which didn't really work. And then, like, the government found out about it anyway. And, yeah, just, like, a whole thing. So, so initially... kind of do covert food aid? Kind of. But it was, yeah, just very badly thought out and and not enough. And so, yeah, like, something was done, but it it, it wasn't... Yeah, it it was badly thought out and it wasn't enough. Um and then in 1846 the the failure of the potato crop was was much much worse and that basically led to um it being a huge huge disaster. Um and in fact 1847 was known as Black 47 for how how terrible of the conditions were that year. Um, as as a little footnote, um, I found out that Frederick Douglass, the um, who was a, a famous um, American abolitionist uh, who escaped enslavement mm-hmm. and and went on to campaign for the abolition of slavery. Um, he, having just published his memoirs, had to get out of America because he was at risk of recapture and came to tour Europe um, and meet lots of abolitionists in Europe. And he stayed in Ireland um, at the very beginning of the potato famine and and noted down some of the things that he saw. Um, And he, he wrote not very much specifically about the potato famine, but he wrote about the conditions in Ireland at the time um, and the way that people were oppressed in this sort of land system um, that that really trapped people in poverty. Um, and so he could see that 
you know, the conditions were kind of right for a disaster to happen. Um, so I'm now going to come on to possibly one of the most hated figures in politics ever, um, who is Sir Charles Trevelyan. I and him, but I already hate him. <laughs> yeah, you're you're definitely going to by the end of this. Trust me. Um, so he was a British civil servant um, who was basically in charge of managing the Irish situation at the time, um, and he he was kind of a terrible person um so i've mentioned that some some of the reasons um that the failure of the potato crop turned into this this massive um the great hunger um and one of the other main ones is that it was not only heavily mismanaged by the British government, but they also there was there was a big push to not do anything. Um, okay. Yeah. So I, the the attitude toward the, the policy towards it was very in, influenced by that kind of Victorian moralism. Um, and and sort of this is going and I don't like it. Yeah, and sort of laissez-faire economics. And um so after um Robert Peel actually um lost his um prime ministership, um the Whig government came into power and they're kind of popularly known for being the more liberal side of the, the two-party government system at the time. But I, they kind of also weren't, um, and in this case, they were they were definitely not in support of sending aid to Ireland. Um, yeah, so Sir so Charles Trevelyan, um, who was working for the Whig government, um, he basically saw this catastrophe as a massive opportunity oh yeah as a massive opportunity to reform the irish economy um he in his book the irish crisis uh which was published in 1848 he described the famine as uh this is this is really bad as a direct stroke of an all-wise and all-merciful providence the sharp but effectual remedy by which the cure is likely to be effected god grant that the generation to which this great opportunity has been offered may rightly perform its part no yeah um Yeah, this is one of the most unfun bits. Um, so there was there was a pretty ingrained prejudice towards the Irish in Britain at the time, um, which was reinforced by the newspapers and the media. 
and they were sort of characterized as uh, also mainly because of the prejudice against Catholics as well. Um, they were sort of characterized as like lazy and drunken, and um, there was this this sort of stereotype um, of an Irish Catholic uh, that that was really pervasive in the British media. Um, I mean, another classic colonial tactic, mm-hmm. um, and the this kind of really played on the response to the famine. So the government kind of thought that if they were to just send aid, um, then the Irish would become reliant on on handouts um, and wouldn't want to work anymore. D- doesn't that sound familiar at all? Mm. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're we're still dealing with this this attitude to this day. Um, but so when it finally came, um, because in 1847, like things were going to get pretty pretty bad if no if no response, like if not nothing to intervene um, was done, and um, the government finally recognised that they were they were going to have a full on rebellion on their hands um, if nothing happened, and so they did eventually send some aid, but it was pretty. It it came with conditions, um, so one of them um, was that any aid received had to be like in return for labor or or something so um in accordance with the poor laws of the time um which some of which 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 also applied um in the rest of great britain um but were slightly different in ireland they um um, to be eligible for public assistance, people had to either be willing to work on public works. So the government commissioned these public works um, that people would be paid to work on. So it wasn't um, even working on existing stuff? No, it was... busy work to punish them for having a famine. Yeah, essentially. Um, so they, there were, um, so they were known as famine roads. Um, a lot of these public works, they they would just get people to build a road that came out of nowhere and didn't really go to anywhere, but they would just have to build it because you have to do work in order to receive assistance. Um, and obviously this was quite labor intensive work so if people were already weak from hunger it wasn't going to be easy to do and um these had also been um put in place earlier in the the famine as well um but the ones that Trevelyan brought in um you were paid 
not you weren't paid a fixed fee for the day you were paid based on your performance um so yeah and the wages weren't even enough to afford the food prices um so yeah that as you can imagine that was there are reports of people um basically dying while at work on the public works um i found some eyewitness accounts um from the irish memorial website and i'll put up the link to this page on the twitter in case anyone wants to read all of these um most of them i'm not going to read because they are very distressing um but yeah i would recommend if if you want to read them in uh to to have a look um i'm just trying to find the one about the roads yeah here we go um so james tuke um member of the society of friends a quaker actually in 1846 um wrote a man employed on the public works became sick his wife had an infant at her breast his son who was 15 years of age was put in his place upon the works um so for the family to continue to receive aid there had to be somebody working on it um and there's another one um from a letter to the Cork Examiner in November 1847, will you believe me when I have to inform you that a poor woman from the parish of Inniscarra, who through hunger happened to pluck up a single turnip in the noonday from one of the fields of Sir George Colthurst of Ardrum, was summoned to appear before the bench of magistrates assembled at the Blarney Petty Sessions on Tuesday last, and fined for such trifling offence in the round sum of 20 shillings by the worthy magistrates. For a turnip. For, for one turnip, yeah. During 1847, when the famine was was at its newest and worst. That's like a week's wages for... <laughs> more than a week's wages for most people. Yeah, it's pretty... Uh, it's... Bad. Yeah. Um... And then there's a lot of descriptions of um, people witnessing what was happening um, in the villages and people dying from starvation, but also um, more than that, from diseases um, that would spread because of malnutrition. Um, so fevers. Um, so it, it's estimated that over a million people died um, in the seven years and a million more emigrated, um, which I'll talk about a little bit later. Um, but yeah, yeah. so there was the, the, serious of, the seriousness um, of the Great Famine is, is not exaggerated. It's, um, it didn't the population only like hit what it was in like the last decade or something. 
Yes. Um, apparently, approximately 25% of the population um, was was gone at the end of the famine, um, either from death or emigration. And it, yeah, it, it basically didn't recover um, until very recently. And it pretty much decimated the Irish language speaking areas as well. Um, so before the famine, um, Irish was quite widely spoken in, in the West and the South. But uh, a lot of the people, that those were also the areas that were hardest hit by the famine. Um, and... Uh, the more Catholic areas. Yeah, so apparently that, that was one of the major factors in the decline of the Irish language as well. Um, although they've done a pretty good job rebuilding that. So I also haven't mentioned the Corn Laws yet. Uh, and those were a very controversial set of laws that restricted the import of foreign grain. So they were meant to protect British farmers um, by by blocking the import of cheap grain from North America. Um, but what they also did uh, was block the import of cheap grain for aid to Ireland. Um, and they were actually repealed during the course of this. 1846, I believe. And the Great Famine was one of the major motivations for the repeal of the Corn Laws. Um, which there had also been, I guess. Yeah, there had also been major opposition to it in, in Great Britain as well, um, because it meant that the price of bread was artificially inflated. Um, so once the Corn Laws were repealed, um, there was also more importation of of grain um, and of maize um, and of other food into Ireland. Um, but during this time also, um, the government still continued exports from Ireland. Um, so the Irish grain and other produce were continued to be exported um in this time that's that makes sense that's gonna help uh yeah exactly i mean as you can imagine that was not very popular and people sort of took things into their own hands in some cases um good i support all of them yeah unfortunately um the police and the army were sent in to sort of protect these exports. And that resulted in, in a lot of violence as well. As you can imagine, um, people also were not able to pay their rent at this time. And due to centuries-long disenfranchisement of Catholics, um, which these laws were gradually repealed, um, and in 1829, they, they were mostly repealed for good um but they, they there was still this legacy of catholic disenfranchisement and that meant that um most of the Irish catholic population um the especially the rural population 
were tenant farmers and didn't own their houses. So they were not able to pay the rent. And the landowners who were also looking for ways that they could sort of modernize their farming and, and combine all these tiny farms into one kind of saw this as an opportunity. And um, some had been doing this beforehand as well, um, sort of moving people out for herds of cattle or, or different crops. Um, but so this... similar to Highland clearances? Um, yes. Um, and this was an opportunity for people, for the landowners, um, to carry out mass evictions, um, which, again, um, when I say mass evictions, they're really helpful. Uh, yeah. So when I say mass evictions, it could be like whole villages. There, are, there's a report of seven hundred people being evicted in on one night in the winter. Um, so causing mass displacement as well. Um, although that one does have a bit of a a sting in the tail at the end, which I do like. So there was another famine um, in 1879, or another potato blight rather, but it didn't turn into a full-blown famine um, because of various reasons. The, um, the blight wasn't as bad as in 1846, and um, the response from the government was actually a lot better, plus the railways allowed food to be distributed more easily. Um, but also, during this time, people remembered who those landlords were. And they the, the most notorious ones were boycotted, but also when people tried to evict their tenants, the whole neighbourhood would come and basically block the eviction. Um, That's amazing. And I like that, yeah. Uh, yeah, so that's kind of a whole, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sorry about the whole kind of string of just really bleak and terrible things happening. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of it. That's what happened. Um. But after the Corn Laws were repealed, there was a lot of foreign aid um, that was able to come into the country. Um, and there was actually international outcry about the way this government response was being handled. Um, and a lot of international aid was sent to Ireland um, from, from lots of different countries, from America. Um, there was a substantial donation from Turkey. Um, and actually, it's said that some of the Irish port towns have like a crescent moon on their coat of arms, um, still in reference to that. Nice. Um, and also, and you might have heard about this because it's um, it's been around the news in recent years. The Choctaw Nation donated oh, yes. $170 um, in aid to a particular town in Ireland. Middleton, to so the town of Middleton in Ireland, uh, which apparently is about $5,000 in today's money. 
And they had actually only recently survived um, a a traumatic event in their own history. Um, And they they took up this donation. They collected $170 to send to the town of Middleton. Um, And that has not been forgotten by Ireland. Um, In fact, there is a memorial, there's a statue um, in the town of Middleton, which um, commemorates the gift of the Choctaw Nation. It's titled Kindred Spirits. Um, Yeah, and that, that was erected in 2017. Um, and it remains there. Uh, there's also a scholarship arrangement uh, whereby Choctaw students are funded to study in Ireland. And in 2020, during the pandemic, um, when the the hardships were particularly bad um, in certain communities, including the Navajo Nation and the Hopi Reservation, um, the Irish nation gave a large donation. Um, so it wasn't back to the Choctaws, but that was their um, their inspiration for making that donation was was to remember the help that they had received in 1847. I, I really like that. Yeah. So I, 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 yeah, that is a really nice act of solidarity between nations um and that that was a somewhat more light-hearted thing (laughs) to come out of this um and actually ireland is now one of the world leaders in foreign aid um so yeah it's it's never been forgotten um this event and it's actually um it's kind of agreed by historians that the the great famine kind of led to eventually to um the easter rising and to that that push for irish home rule because obviously at that time um it was still within living memory that makes a lot of sense because we were talking in the potato episode, weren't we, about the the hungry forties, the sort of Europe wide potato blight, basically leading to most of the countries kicking off, mm-hmm. including like the establishment of more than one like actual national constitution. Yeah, and there actually was a push for a revolution in Ireland at that time. Um, in fact, um, a, a sort of Irish um, nationalist group went to Paris um, in that year um, to kind of learn about what happened and how they could make it happen in Ireland. And there was, there was real hope that this could happen. Um, and that's actually where the present day Irish flag came from, I, I found out today. Um, so it's it's based on the French tricolor, but with the green representing Catholics and the white representing Protestants, uh, sorry, the orange representing Protestants and the right representing truce. That's really lovely. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but yeah, there of course 
wasn't a revolution at the time. Mm -hmm. And um, that's kind of attributed to, it was a massive famine and people did not have the energy, um, sadly. Understandable. Um, Yeah, but as we know, things were a different story in the next century. Um, Yeah, so thinking about a sort of folk culture and how this this is a huge part of um sort of irish folk memory and i was looking for folk songs dealing with with this period in irish history and of course ireland having a a really fate world famous um musical tradition i i thought there would be more songs about this Um, But there actually aren't that many. And the theory behind that is that, you know, because it was such a dark time, people didn't really want to talk about it or make songs about it, which which is understandable. Um, There there are a few, uh, mostly in Irish, of course. Um, But the most famous Irish song about the Great Famine is The Fields of Athenry. And that is kind of a surprising one because it's actually not a traditional song. It was written in 1979. Um, so I, you've, as far as I know, you've not done the Fields of Athen Rye on your folk song history. No, I'm. I mean, I haven't done any folk song history videos in a while, but I haven't mm-hmm. done that one. Um. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, it's the one. It's the one that goes like uh, low light fields of Athenry. Um, the folk group that Liz and I are part of um, have often sung this, actually. Um, but I didn't know. I didn't get a lot of the references in it until I did the research for this episode, um, because it contains the line, "You stole Trevelyan's corn, so the young might see the morn." And that, of course, is a reference to Sir Charles Trevelyan and his plan um, to introduce corn um, into the Irish market, but but like people still had to pay for it, and it it just it didn't go very well. Um, but yeah, this is one of those those episodes where it's really hard not to swear, isn't it? It really is. It really is. Um, yeah, so so he 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 did send food, but it was kind of yeah, it doesn't count. Mm, yeah, people like couldn't afford it, and also he continued these exports of of corn as well. Um, so that's a reference to when people would get together in these gangs and and like go and take the food um and you know of course there was a crackdown by the government on that so the song is about a a young man who has a family and and he goes and steals this corn um to feed his children and then he gets taken away to australia on a prison ship um yeah so this is actually not a traditional song it's a very beautiful song um it was written in 1979, but it's one of those songs that has entered the folk tradition. Um, yeah, I, when this episode goes up, I'll post a link to probably the Dubliners version. Yeah, that would be good. Um, 
yeah, it's very, very famous um, internationally, actually. Um, and I will also post, I found a, a lovely video of um, uh, the 2012 Euros when Ireland was knocked out 4-0 by Spain. And for the last part, the last few minutes of the game, all the Irish fans started singing the Fields of Athenry. Um, and it is, it, it is very moving, actually. Um, I'll post a link to that video. Um, but yeah, so that, that is actually the most famous uh, folk depiction of the Great Famine. Um, so I, I think that's pretty much everything I wanted to say. Um, my apologies for <laughs> presenting it in quite a mixed up manner. Um, I did, I did kind of feel a bit of pressure on this episode. Um, like it's, it's been quite different to a lot of the other things we talk about. And though we have talked about, uh, things involving colonialism and, and atrocities and, uh, and disasters, um, before on the podcast, I, I think this is the first time we've sort of delved into it in, in such a specific way. Um, I think so, yeah. Yeah. So I've done my best. <laughs> um, and I hope that it has been informative <laughs> for people who may not have known about this period in history before. So we're going a little bit lighter with the local larder. Apologies for my voice. I've been coughing. Um, I thought I would talk about fairy bread. Okay. Yeah, that, that does sound enjoyable. So it's going to be a fairly short one, but I think it was quite a lot to say about the main topic. Um, so fairy bread is incredibly straightforward it is bread and butter with sprinkles on mm -hmm. uh, normally rainbow ones oh um it's a popular children's party thing in australia and new zealand okay <laughs> that sounds quite nice it is nice like the pictures of it I feel like it would be far too sweet for me, but also it is for children who love sugar in all its forms. That is true. Um, so the name doesn't show up until 1929 in a Tasmanian newspaper, um, which talks about children in a tuberculosis hospital. Having a party with um, fairy bread and butter and hundreds and thousands and cakes, tarts and homemade cakes. Oh, so I don't I don't know why it differentiates cakes and homemade cakes. Yeah, I don't know what <laughs> what's the difference. Um. But yeah, it's thought that the title comes from a. Robert Louis Stevenson poem. Oh, what, which, what about? Well, I'll, I'll read it because it's fairly short. Come up here, O oh dusty feet, 
Here is fairy bread to eat. Here in my retiring room, children, you may dine on the golden smell of broom and the shade of pine. And when you have eaten well, fairy stories hear and tell. Aww. This is very nice. That sounds like a nice time where you might potentially get kidnapped. I mean, I feel like if you're already in the fairy realm at this point, why have I got? Um, it's thought that the name fairy bread actually originally referred to just thin toast. Um, and basically people started putting butter and sprinkles on it as a treat for children and then the name became that specific preparation. I see, okay. Because um, there's, yeah, in 1913... There's a recipe for fairy bread, which is essentially a tea cake. Okay. And I I just think it's a very cute stack. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, in April 2021, um, an Australian satirical comedy group called The Chaser created a fake online petition to rename it because the name the word fairy is um in some places including australia also used as a homophobic slur mm-hmm. and it got picked up by news corp oh of course it did um as an actual thing that they thought was a real petition even though the the website said that it was a fake petition actually on there oh well done journalism they basically wanted to point out how little fact-checking sort of outrage right-wing newspapers do okay and and the bait was taken handsomely it it was um and yeah in november of this year, there was apparently a Google Doodle celebrating it. Oh. Not everywhere, but in in Australia. And it's it's very cute. It's the word Google on some slices of fairy bread to do a little <laughs> dance. That's cool. So yeah, like I said, very short, but that is but fairy nice. bread that I thought would be a nice... Contrast <laughs> the first part of the episode. Definitely. That is that is a tonic. And I appreciate it. Um so yeah, so happy new year. Cause this goes out I believe on the second of January. Yeah, it does. Which is not a real year, that is a far future year. <laughs> that is true, it's still March twenty twenty. Um, but happy new year everybody if you want to support us you can go to patreon.com slash bread and thread where you can get access to recipes including my version of Danish sugar cookies Mm. as well as a patreon discord server where we chat about food and crafts and all sorts of things 
Uh, you can also email us at breadandthreadpodcast at e- gmail.com um, if there's anything you would like us to know about or anything you'd like to suggest for an episode. Yes, the um, person that suggested an episode on sugar, it is coming probably in February. Excellent. There's a lot of research to do. It's a big topic. <laughs> you can find us at Twitter on on Twitter at Bread and Thread, um, where you'll see teasers for upcoming episodes, uh, links to things we talk about on the podcast, and uh, any other things we are interested in. Uh, we also have a Tumblr, Bread and Thread, where we post the same stuff, um, occasionally reblog history things. That, that I come across on Tumblr. Uh, and we are on YouTube where you can also listen to the podcast there. Um, also, Bread and Thread. So, yeah, again, Happy New Year. Sorry for the bleak, but it needed covering, and right after potatoes seemed like the time. Uh, yeah, I think it was best not to lose the momentum. And, you know, it's, it's, it's something that. Um, needs to be talked about so yeah the next episode is a bio episode so i'll find someone fun (laughs) i have a couple of ideas okay Um, but yeah thank you for listening and we will see you next time